All right. Welcome, Christian Meyer. Thanks for taking time out to talk to us. Thank you, Ken. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> How are things? This feels so podcasty. Yeah, and yeah, you know, we got to kick it off. So, uh, oh, that's great. Um, how, how are things down in Spain right now? Things are good. Well, good. I mean, we're locked down. We've been locked down right. now since March 14th. So we're going on just over a month, month right. and a few days. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're pretty heavily locked down. I mean, compared to some other European countries where, you know, no, no exercise. Um, really, you're just allowed to go out and get groceries or or uh, go to the pharmacy, things like that for most civilians. They just, uh, we had a two week period where they sort of closed all non-essential work, um, which was pretty heavy. Uh, now they sort of opened up a few things again. So for example, construction companies are working, um, a couple more magazine shops, very small things. Um, if you have uh, an online shop, for example, you can be fulfilling orders and, and things like that. It's just essentially no no public contact and no public stores. Yeah, so we have that still until the 26th of April, um, but they're talking like most likely they're gonna extend that. So we're probably looking at uh, early May um, and hopefully starting to relax a few things along the way. Um, they're talking a little bit about uh, you know, actually in, in all of Europe, um, Spain is sort of actually the most stringent, especially with, with, uh, children. So, right. So essentially no children on the street are allowed, um, unless the parent, you know, is the only parent and they really have to leave for a critical reason. Um, otherwise children are, are indoors. Um, so they're really starting to look at that and they're really starting to say, look, we need to start being able to, you know, children have been locked in the house for five weeks now. Uh, yeah. So they're looking to slowly start to slacken those, those, those um, measures a little bit. Hopefully means that maybe, you know, um, they're starting to say they might be able to go out people to have a little bit more, you know, just to go for a walk um, or something like that, still maintaining distance, but, you know, being able to leave for other than just pure measures, which maybe, I don't know if cycling will fall back under that. Um, but at least sort of walking on for a walk in the forest would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys get to walk the dogs, right? That's yeah. So here actually, yeah, walking the dogs is one thing you're allowed to do. So we've got a couple of dogs and that gets us out. Technically you're not supposed to walk together. Um, so one person, one dog at a time, not both out together. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, it kind of makes sense. And you're also kind of like, well, you live together at home. So if you're kind of walking together outside, it's probably the, the least of our worries. But anyway, I mean, I understand the rules and, and, and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, and it's, I mean, it's apparently working. So in Spain, uh, things are starting to get better slowly, which is good because we, you know, it was quite heavy on our heavy burden on the, on the system. Um, yeah, that's no, starting to stress. Yeah. By it. Yeah. So yeah, good. I mean, uh, doing what we can. How much Girona now? We, this will be 12 years this year. Yeah. Wow. 12 years came in, uh, 2008 was when we first came over with, uh, yeah, gosh, back then it was slipstream, slipstream, Garmin slipstream. And then, uh, they have their service course there. Was that the deal? Yeah. Yeah. So they got, they put their service course there, uh, 
sort of 2017 is when mm -hmm. they started, when it was sort of just slip, slipstream, sorry. And at that point, they, 2007, 2007. Yeah, right? exactly. So then they weren't really, uh, they were still, I think, uh, a pro continental team at that time. They weren't at world tour yet. And then 2008 is kind of when they stepped up to world tour. Um, and then Garmin came on. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I mean, change yeah, teams. Who was, team? who was on the team back then? Like was DJ oh, on the team? Yeah, it was. Um, so when I was racing there, it would have been, yeah, DZ was there, Vandeveld, um, Miller, um, Johan Van Sommeren, uh, who else was do we have? McCarthy on the team then? Yeah, he was. Good guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and... I told you I went to high school with him, right? Really? Yeah, in Iowa. Him and I were in, we actually oh. were snowboarding together and we went to high school together. You're talking about, yeah, Jason McCartney. No, Jason McCartney wasn't on there. Uh, okay. he, was, he would have been Discovery Discovery at that point, I think, still. Um, you, did you race with him or? No? I never raced with him, no. I never raced with him. But I knew him here in Girona. Um, right. Amber actually used to babysit for them a little bit back in the day um, when they were living right. over here. Right. Um, yeah, it was a bit of, I mean, back then it was, was quite different. I mean, we were talking about like slipstream days. We were in Girona probably 10 guys, you know, 10, 12, maybe like the slipstream guys. And that was it. You know, there was no other teams. There was no one else around. Um, well, Bar, maybe Michael Berry, um, a few HTC guys, um, Hincapie, uh, Craig Lewis, um, and Greg Henderson. Uh, they were kind of living here. They were kind of like the only sort of non slipstream guys. Mm -hmm. It was a small town back then, you know, not much going on. It was pretty sleepy. Um, it's changed a lot since then, obviously, you know. Right. And which you guys have been a big part of. Yeah, I mean, I think I think so. I mean, I think we've we've tried to to sort of uh, add value where we can to to Girona, you know, starting with the cafes, and when then uh, the fabric was two thousand fifteen. We opened. Yeah, it's gonna be five years this year, and then Espresso Mafia was a year after that, sixteen, and then service course was the end of 16, actually. Right. So it was a pretty busy couple of years there. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's been, it's been great. I mean, it's been a good journey. It's been uh, a lot of work, a lot of ups and downs, uh, but you know, it's been pretty epic. It's been great. Nice. Mm -hmm. So I, basically, if I recall the story right, and feel free to tell the story yourself, but um, you guys basically started La Fabrica, so Amber, had you know something of her own to do there and felt like she could create her own thing is that correct yeah i mean we sort of had this uh you know bit of a eureka moment well i don't know if eureka moment is the correct word for it actually the correct phrase but uh we sort of have a moment after i did the the tour in, in 2014 and you know the tour is kind of that it's that race for every rider um and the rider that i was i mean doing the tour was something that was going to be not necessarily exceptional, but, you know, it would really take everything for a rider like myself to do the Tour de France. I mean, I was a, 
uh, a domestique um, through and through, um, which is what I really love to do. But when you talk about Tour de France, I mean, Tour de France is the type of race where guys that are winners become domestiques, you know, like it's really top level A team that goes to the tour. And, and that year uh, in 2014, I was sort of, um, you know, I had a great year and I'd shown that I could do grand tours and that I was very resilient having done, you know, Giro's and Welts before that. Um, and I was just having a really good year. And then the team sort of said, look, we, you know, we're starting to shift a little bit more towards uh, uh, GC versus just kind of doing sprints and, and opportunistic sort of stages. And so that kind of put me a little bit more on the radar, um, whereas previously the team had always sort of looked towards stage opportunities. Um, so they generally took more lead out type riders or riders that um, were opportunistic winners, you know, like your Albacinis and, and Impies and, and guys like that. And this year they're starting to focus a little bit more towards the GC. So they said, okay, you know, we're, we're you going to be on the, on the long list and, and let's see how it goes. Um, I mean, that was actually kind of a, a funny story kind of all on its own because that year I just sort of set myself as I'm going to the tour, right? So every, everything I did in, in training or everything I did in, in preparation or race calendar, I was kind of had this sort of, I mean, called inside joke, but I kind of had this joke with my coach who was the team coach, Mark Watt. And anytime there was sort of anything was in question or doubt, I always said, well, you know, what's better for the tour? You know, so I was kept like, you know, internally it was kind of like a joke, but you know, it's this type of thing where generally you sort of say, you know, the manifestation of your energy is kind of essentially, you know, if you tell yourself enough that you're going to do it, you're probably going to end up doing it. So, you know, as the year went on, actually what ended up happening was, uh, I was on the long list and then I was going well. Um, and then, but at the Dauphiné, uh, the team essentially was kind of between Dauphiné and the Tour of Suisse is more where the teams make their final call on on the on the tour squad. So, you know, there I was Dauphiné and they had a, I had a chat with the director afterwards said, look, you know, unfortunately this year, you know, you've not been selected um, to go, but you're the first reserve, right? So if anything happens to, you know, any of the other nine riders, you're the first guy that, that goes. And, you know, I was fine. You know, I was okay with that. I understand. I mean, it's, it's a super strong team. It's a difficult team. And, and, you know, I wasn't there saying that, you know, anyone who was on the A team deserved it more than I did or anything like that. But so I kind of kept going. And then after Dauphiné, end of June, um, and a week before the tour is usually our, the national championships in most countries. So I went back for, for nationals, um, did the race, all that. Then I went back to Vancouver um, and was about to plan to take a sort of a, a holiday. Usually you either do the tour or you take probably two weeks off and then build up again to the second part of the season. So when I got to Vancouver, um, Amber and I decided, well, let's take a few days off um, and we'll go to Vegas. And uh, we've been to Vegas the year before and we enjoyed it and we go see a couple of shows and you know just have a good time. It's, it's a great way to disconnect. So I went down there. Um, we're having a good time on the 
second day we were there, um, I wake up in the morning, I see about a missed call um, from Whitey, our team director, Matt White. And he said, and then I got an email and there was a couple emails at the same time. Um, one from Whitey that said sort of, you know, um, you know, call me when you have a chance. And there was another very unfortunate email from the team about um, Daryl Limpy. So Daryl had unfortunately, he had, he had tested positive for a contaminated uh, supplement in, in his national championships were actually been in February. So um, long story short, Daryl wasn't going to the tour. I mean, he later got acquitted of, of that and, and found out it was the tainted capsules that the, the pharmacy had, had sort of mishandled amongst other things um, that they were, they were counting out on the pill counter. And anyway, so then I called, I called uh, Whitey and, you know, we talk about this thing with Daryl and he's like, and, and, you know, they said, okay, look, we're going to take um, Simon Yates instead of you because you know simon's already here in the uk the starts in the uk the starts in like a few days um at the time they were entertaining a quite a big potential uh sponsor from the uk so it kind of made sense i was like yeah that's fine i mean it, it makes complete sense he's there he's fit and you know it's his home country and, and all that sort of stuff and uh i'm in i'm in vegas you know <laughs> and Anyway, so we have this big conversation for like, you know, half an hour about all the stuff with Daryl and Simon and all that. And at the very end, like just before we hang up, he says, uh, oh yeah, and by the way, um, Michael Matthews just this morning before getting on the plane to fly to the start, he was doing a spin and he crashed. So we don't know how bad it is yet, but you might have to come anyway. So I'm like, yeah, you just chuck that in right at the end, you know? Anyway, so then, you know, the kind of day passes a bit and, you know, I get another call from, from, from Whitey and he's sort of saying, look, we're kind of waiting to see what's going on with, with, with Matthews. You know, he's crashed pretty heavily. We don't know what it's going to be. He's been to the hospital in Monaco, um, but we're waiting for him to fly up and for the team doctor to take a really good look and assess if he can start or not. Um, kind of like, what do you want to do? You know, I mean, you can right. fly over here right now. It's a 50, 50 chance. You might start, you might get over here and you might not. Um, and, and I said, look, just buy a return ticket and I'll fly over. And if I don't start, I'll come back. I mean, worst case, I'll spend an extra day traveling around. And so I get there, um, and very quickly it becomes very evident that, you know, cause I got picked up by the team doctor in this one year and we already on the way to the hotel stopped at the Manchester university where I got blood tests done because he always have to do a sort of a full set of blood tests and analysis before you start the grand tour, got blood tests done, everything done. Cause I, I missed all that. Like all that happened for the team in the two days before. And, you know, the doctor was like, yeah, he's, pretty rough shape. Like he's, he's, he's not going to start. And, but you're still kind of like, look, I mean, until someone tells me I'm starting for sure, you know, I'm not going to think I'm starting. And yeah. So then I went to the hotel and then, you know, we're talking about like, this is a day and a half before the start. 
<laughs> and saw uh, Michael and and he was kind of in not great shape and I think uh, a bit demoralized by by his crash and stuff. And then um, yeah, sure enough, the next day, you know, we went for a spin for a couple hours, and then after an hour, Michael just sort of turned around and said, you know, I'm out. So there it was kind of like the day before the tour starts doing my spin and uh starting the next day i mean i i had hey no idea what was going on in the tour you know I, I wasn't studying we we had done a recon of of two stages that i did with the team earlier in the year two stages that we were targeting but i knew nothing else i knew nothing about the stages that were coming uh you know even my accreditation my badge didn't have a photo on it it was kind of like one of those kind of ghost photos <laughs> And, you know, I was kind of missed the team presentation, missed all like kind of that cool, fun stuff. But yeah, I mean, just, just sort of got into it, you know, in day one. I mean, my, sure, my heart rate was a bit higher maybe than normal, but uh, I was super fresh and both physically and mentally and, and eventually ended up having a great tour. You know, I was, I was, I was great the whole way through. Um, coming off, you know, my only ride in the previous week almost had been, well, that one spin the day before. And then in Vegas, when I sort of found out, okay, I'm going, I kind of went down to the gym and uh, jumped on, jumped on the spin bike, you know, <laughs> in full civvies, right? Just t-shirt and shorts. And, and I'm on this thing, and I'm just saying, I'm pedaling, right? And I'm just like going, just want to get the heart rate up a little bit. And there's this guy kind of like on one of those, uh, uh, what do you call them? The, like the stair things. Um, Stairmaster. Yeah, Stairmaster. And he's like looking at me. He's like, hey, man, it's not the Tour de France. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's not. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the story of how I actually got to that tour. Um, after that tour, uh, you know, it was kind of a really big thing for us because, you know, doing it and, and my family came over to you know, see the finish in the Champs Elysees, and it is really something that is ultra special. I mean, the tour really is a different beast. You know, um, just every day is like the queen stage of a normal race. Like, I remember that year, every single day was full gas. I mean, because we started in the UK, so it was really hilly already. Um, all the stages and, and the crowds in the UK were, I have never seen anything like it in my life. You have like 200 kilometers with not a single meter of not someone standing. I mean, it was, it was right. mind blowing. Um, and it was also terrifying because a lot of the people that came out to watch weren't necessarily cycling fans. I mean, they were sort of, you know, the, the Tour de France in the UK and it's this massive event that's free for everybody. So people are just coming out to the side of the street just to watch, right? Um, yeah. But a lot of them don't really understand A, like how fast you go and be that we actually literally take up right to the edge of the road, you know? So people are like standing out there trying to get selfies, like, you know, with their back to the Peloton and, 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 uh, going over climbs, you know, you just, you couldn't, you couldn't talk to the guy beside you. Right. You couldn't hear your race radio. I mean, it was just roaring. I mean, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then we went across straight and we did Roubaix stage. So, I mean, even those flat stages that we did the next week, we we're all just already kind of GC days. Um, right. And then we had a lot of rain that year and it was kind of like, so every stage was just like something, you know? Um, 
And then after that, so when I got back to Toronto, we settled down a bit. Um, my wife and I took a few days. We went to the beach and and you know, sort of had this sort of moment of like, okay, well, what's next for us now? You know, I mean, the Tour de France was something that we had both worked to uh, for many years um, to get it done and, and ex- experience that. And my wife, Amber, she had been sort of, she had just been taking care of me. I mean, she moved to, to Spain with me and, and, uh, literally just took care of me, you know? And, uh, so as both of us to kind of really worked hard to get there, but she is a super ambitious person, right? She loved to work and loved to be among people. And, and, and she's such an extrovert and it just kind of got to the point. So, okay, now, you know, we've done this reached sort of what we really set out to do. Um, and again, for me, I probably wasn't gonna be a rider that was gonna now line up and do 10 Tour de France's, right? Like for me, every year was gonna be like really hard work to get there. And it was kind of one of those things we did. So it kind of like, well, what's next? And and Amber really wanted to get back to doing something, uh, back to work. So we started just talking about like, okay, what can we do? You know, maybe she would go back to Canada and, and get a job and we'd sort of spend some time going back and forth and things like that and manage it that way. Um, and we always had the idea of doing a cafe. Um, I mean, I really love specialty coffee. And um, at this point, I was already roasting coffee at home and things like that. And she loved hospitality. Um, she loved being with people. She liked uh, hosting. So we said, well, you know, we always want to do this. Why don't we just do it here in Spain? You know, it's uh, Girona was starting to grow. You know, we had more professional cyclists living here. And we still had zero specialty coffee. And, you know, all those cyclists that were now living here, I mean, they had all come from a place where specialty coffee is a part of their culture, you know, US, Australia, um, Scandinavians. So there was really nowhere to get good coffee. And at this point, I'd, I'd been roasting at home and I had this little roaster and I was roasting and I was kind of distributing a bit of coffee to guys already and stuff like that. So we just sort of thought, look, we open this. I mean, we kind of have a target audience already. Right. We've got a group of professionals here who who would start drinking our coffee, visiting our cafe from day one. So, yeah, we just sort of jumped in, um, went for it. You know, we didn't really have any sort of experience and I, it was it was a big job. Uh, but you guys had met in the coffee shop, right? Didn't you? Yeah. I mean, she was working in a coffee shop. That's where I met her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Way back. So, yeah, I mean, the, like she like as far as yeah, kind of the day-to-day of the cafe, she kind of understood that quite well. But when it actually came to starting and, and imagining a, a business, I mean, that's kind of another story. And then sort of top on top of that, you know, we were here in, in Catalonia, you know, a region of Spain. So Catalonia has its own dialect, its own language. So, you know, Catalan is not a particularly easy language to learn. Um, and neither of us really spoke much of it. Um, I mean, my Spanish was quite good. We're talking in, in an age where probably 10 years ago, uh, Girona in, in, in the world of Catalonia uh, was kind of the, the stronghold, right? So, I mean, I think a lot of people probably saw what happened in Catalonia the last couple of years with, with independence, the sort of push for independence and things like that. Um, Girona was really that stronghold. So, you know, even though a lot of people knew Spanish. I mean, they spoke Catalan. I mean, they're super right. proud of, of Catalan. So even when we would go to the city hall, for example, 
to try to work on some permits and paperwork. I mean, you speak Spanish, I speak Catalan back, you know, and you're just kind of like, <laughs> it, it was, it was heavy and it was hard. You know, we had, uh, luckily we had a local guy who was helping us. Um, and we kind of managed sort of through that, uh, process, made some mistakes and got shut down. We opened up and then got shut down two months later and then we're closed for six weeks and then opened again. And it was kind of like hurdle after hurdle after hurdle, you know, it kind of felt it was like this real uphill battle. Um, but you know, we were kind of used to that. I mean, essentially that's what, that's what cycling is. I mean, cycling, um, as a bike racer, you lose most of the time. Right. I mean, right. even, even the most winningest team in cycling loses most of the time. Um, so, you know, you're always kind of like reassessing, how can we fix it, move on, you know, and that's kind of where that mentality is. And yeah, so it took some years, but then, you know, by the time we moved on to uh, Espresso Mafia, which, which has our, our roastery there, we were already, moving much better much quicker we had a you know at this point we had a really good engineer and we had a really good um group of construction workers that we really started to trust and 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 then we when we moved on the service course you know we brought that same crew that we had worked with and then everything starts to like click and you start to get things done really well and you've got certain things figured out so you know that the evolution was 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 great and yeah here we are <laughs> yeah it's been a pretty interesting journey to watch for sure when did you retire what year i retired at the end of 2016 20 so 2017 was my first year yeah right and you actually had a two-year contract at that point in time you just decided you you did one year of that contract and then opted out and yeah exactly so it up. i mean i sort of got this point where you know, after that tour, um, in 2014, uh, 2014, 2015, I was on the long list again. Um, and the end, I didn't get selected, but, um, I guess sort of started to reach this point where, you know, we had these businesses going, um, while I was racing, I really enjoyed them. I mean, I really enjoyed the specialty coffee, you know, sort of a, a whole other world that was opening up for me, um, aside from cycling and cycling for me was always something a bit different. Right. Like I didn't, I didn't ride bikes to race. You know, I raced to ride bikes. Um, when I was a young guy and I started and I sort of caught the cycling bug, I just wanted to ride a bike all the time. You know, I raced everything from downhill to cross country, to road, to track, to like cyclocross, anything I could race, I raced. And I got to a point where I was like, oh, I just, I want to ride my bike. That's what I want to do. And for me, the way to do that was to become a fresher bike rider. Um, so I sort of said, look, I'm going to be told my parents, I'm going to become a professional bike rider. And I started sort of going to Belgium when I was younger on my own and, and just, you know, starting down that, that path. And, you know, then with the other businesses, once sort of that specialty coffee bug sort of caught me, um, you know, I had a lot of that same stuff, you know, it was super interesting and I was really enjoying it and I was growing in that. I really love cycling, um, but I was getting to the point where I was like, look, um, I really want to dedicate myself to the businesses. I'm at a point now in my cycling career where, you know, I was 32 at the time and I easily could have done another five years or more. Um, 
but I was starting to see, okay, you know, now I was getting to the point where each season, same races, same training camps, you know, I had done World to Catalonia, Tour of the Basque Country every single year of my career, you know, it's just like same, same, same big focus on the Ardennes and again, maybe a couple of small races change, but it's kind of like, it was starting to become a little bit boring, uh, to be honest. And I still love the race. I mean, I still love riding. I mean, training was what I loved so much about the sport. And so it's not even that I'd lost any motivation to train or to push myself or yeah. anything like that. It was just thinking like, Oh, I've got this other stuff. That's really, I really can dedicate myself to and still have a lot of room to grow as a person, but in professional bike racing, I'd kind of reached my peak. You know, I can cruise here now I can settle in and I can cruise for another five years and, you know, get a good paycheck, whatever, and just do my thing. But growth, personal growth was not really happening anymore. And I also knew like, well, I can also just keep riding my bike, you know, like there's no reason knocking professional means I give up cycling. So, um, you know, I sort of spoke to the team. I got to a point where I was like, you know, made sure I was really sure about it. And, you know, I just had a conversation with, with the team and said, look, you know, I think I have two year contract and, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about stopping at the end of this year, you know, for these reasons, you know, um, I've got this going on and, and I don't want to waste your time for the team. Like, I don't want it to be kind of essentially half-assing it and just to cash my paycheck and whatever, you know, when there's, there's, there's a hundred young guys just chomping at the bit, you know, who, you know, cycling is such a fickle sport that, I mean, this might be, this season might be their one opportunity to get on a pro team, right. you know, next year. Yeah. Like we've seen in the last few years of professional Peloton, it's like one small thing disrupts the whole ecosystem and one team folds, and, and all of a sudden it's like a whole group of people that are great, really great riders are out of contract. Right. right? So, um, you know, instead of me just kind of sitting in there for, for something I'm not hundred percent, um, dedicated to just didn't make sense. And I mean, they were super on board and, and, and very supportive of that, um, which is great. And, and it means I also left, you know, with a good reputation, you know, I didn't want to leave and be that guy. That's like, every time his name comes up, he's like, Oh, that jerk, you know? Um, right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it was, a it was a pretty easy decision actually, uh, for me and I've not regretted it once since I stopped, you know, people ask me all the time, well, do, do you miss racing? But not well, like I, what I was going to say is, yeah, you, you, you're not racing at that pro tour level, but it seems like you've found a new love in gravel racing and this adventuring and an, a, it's just a different tangent really for you to take. Yeah. I mean, I think what, what I love so much about cycling was when I said that that's sort of the training aspect of it, is I really, I enjoy to push myself. I kind of need to push myself um, physically uh, once in a while. Like I need some things where I really spend the time and I really just kind of get it all out. And, and I generally, when I go riding, I ride quite hard, you know, even when I'm riding on, on, on the trainer these days. So, um, you know, I still love that pushing myself. It's not necessarily even about, the race, but what I think that's what's so great about the gravel is that it's really about um, it's slightly more individual, 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the year after I stopped in 2018, uh, I did Haute Route Alps, right? Which is, uh, for those that don't know, it's a seven day stage race, supposed to be sort of the hardest amateur stage race in the world. And the, the most- is that Pardon? the race that they used for the um, uh, Icarus film? The yes, exactly, film? exactly. And it was that, the Alps also, yeah, exactly. Right. And so our photographer at Service Course, Tristan, who's a very competitive road racer, said, uh, well, back that up a tiny bit. I had that earlier that year said, I would really like to do transcontinental. Um, mm -hmm. I've never done anything like it. And originally, uh, Mattia from Legor said he would do it with me. And then he decided he didn't want to do it with me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so then I was like, well, you know, I've never done anything like it. It's a pretty big undertaking. I didn't really necessarily want to do it solo my first time. So I was like, well, okay. Tristan had said, I really want to, I really want to go and try to win Haute Route. In Australia, Haute Route is quite a big, uh, event that has a bit of quite a bit of pedigree and I said well look I was going to do transcontinental but I'm not so I'll come and I'll just I'll help you I'll ride for you right um, and so we went there and after two days I really realized I'm like the uh, amateur road racing is not for me <laughs> it was man it was, it's it's you know, it's, it's, it's a competitive event, right? Um, obviously, but you know, just, just how serious some guys were taking it for me was a bit like, okay, this is insane. Right. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's generally it, it works in time sections. So they'll time, uh, climbs more than anything. Like it's just heinous climbing, but sometimes what they'll do is they'll do, uh, sort of, uh, one climb a valley and another climb, and then they'll stop the timing. So you still have a descent in there. And some of these guys were just willing to risk limb and life on descents. I mean, we're racing on open roads. I mean, okay, the front group has a bit more commissaire and, and they kind of open the road a little bit, but it's not fully closed. So and these guys are just like attacking on the downhills and things like that. I'm just like, this is mayhem, you know? Um, and I especially when I saw a guy going over the, I saw one guy go over the barriers um, over the top of the climb, uh, we were like a group of eight or 10 left. And, and essentially what was happening each day was I would just go to the front on the first climb and I'd ride a hard tempo. Um, and then we'd be like generally the same five guys off the front and we'd spend the rest of the day off the front. And, um, so that day I rode a little bit easier on the first climb. Um, so we were a little bit bigger group. We were probably 10. Oh, eight to 10, but those extra five ish guys, I mean, they were really on the limit to be there. Right. And when we got to the top and started this downhill, one of the guys attacked, um, and you know, this guy who was kind of big towards the back of the group and I had swung off cause I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not racing on this descent. You know, this is ridiculous. And I come around this corner and the guy, you see this guy's bike somersaulting in the air, like, crazy and he he went over the 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 barrier but we're talking like two meter sheer drop uh oh, no to like rocks 
and shrubs. And I'm like, and I stop. I'm the only guy that stops. It's just like, you're looking at guys just keep going. You're like, anyway, so I like, she's uh, bracing for this. Cause I'm like, this guy, he's, he's flown over the edge here. You know, his, his bike was, I mean, he and his bike were literally like meters in the air. And I go and he's just like laying down there. I'm like, geez, Louise, this is not what I need to be doing right now. Anyway, we kind of like, you know, he starts like moving and stuff and I just try to get him just to relax for a bit. Um, and then motorbike stops, calm car stops. And then, you know, we kind of get him out and he's like sliced his bicep open and all sorts of stuff. And it was just like, and, but it was just, I'm like, why are we doing this guys? Like, just relax, you know, you just race on the hills or whatever you want to do. But like, anyway, so that point I realized, okay, you know what, this sort of, uh, slightly amateur road scene is, is not right for me. Gravel on the other hand, it's pretty fun. Um, you know, I think what I like about gravel is, is even on the racing side, it's still a different vibe, you know, guys take it serious. Um, on the gravel side, I particularly like the really long sort of stuff. Um, just cause now if, you know, I don't really have time to train, but the long distance stuff kind of suits you because you have, um, you know, years of kilometers in your legs, right? So that just kind of like generally stays there. And that longer steady state stuff still is kind of always there. Um, but what I also like is it's just, it's a different atmosphere right from the beginning. You know, it's more social. Um, even look, when you go to do a race like Dirty Kanza, you know, it's competitive, but you know, we're still like, guys are still having some jokes during the day and, and you know, you might, you know, you might wait for a guy here and there. You might, it's not just that same, just full gas all the time and like ultra competitive and, and that, and, you know, last year when we did the rift in Iceland, right. I mean, we were that front group. I mean, it's a race race and we were that front group. And, and there was uh, four of us and with uh, Ted and, and Colin and uh, we had this Icelandic pro mountain biker. Um, you know, we were riding hard, but we were still like, you know, we'd stop, take a photo here and there. You know, if, if someone had a problem on the bike, you know, we'd all stop and we'd wait, you know, and then we'd go again. And it was kind of like, you know what, at the end of the day, the guy with the best legs is still gonna have the best legs, you know? Um, right. And we're not necessarily gonna be like, oh, you know, at this point when his headset's loose, I'm gonna attack him and then try to get some advantage for, you know, it's kind of a, a, it's a little stupid reason. Um, and that's what I kind of like about it. Chance tends to be more like, you know, let's get out there, ride hard. And then whoever's left is left and that's it, you know, and then we'll have a beer after and, and chill. Um, so it's a super, super inviting community. And, and, um, yeah, I guess some of that feels just a little bit less bullshitty, you know? Right. How was Atlas mountain compared to like the other events that was more mountain bike or what was that all about? Well, Atlas, I mean, Atlas is, is, uh, yeah, Atlas is, was kind of just completely next level, to be honest. I mean, it was, uh, so Atlas is organized by Nelson trees who organizes the Silk Road mountain race and Silk Road mountain race, Kirkstan. I mean, he did that race with the idea of making it the hardest bike race in the world. Right. So his idea was sort of model it after the original tour de France's, you know, and the idea of the original tour de France was that, you know, 
one guy should finish <laughs> only, you know, it should be so epic that only one guy gets through. Um, right. And so Silk Road really lives up to that reputation. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly difficult race. Um, and then Atlas Mountain, he'd sort of done this like, you know, just to lower a little bit the barrier of entry to, for people to start to go on these, you know, bikepacking races. Um, and, it, but it was still, I mean, it was incredibly technical. Um, there was a lot of hike a bike. Um, I mean, he actually, I mean, it, he, he had stated in his race manual what, what the perfect bike would be. Um, and I think a lot of people maybe took that for granted, um, especially probably in this, uh, in this lifetime. I mean, when <laughs> you make that, that general mistake of Atlas Mount Instagram account is these beautiful roads, these beautiful gravel roads, you know, these epic landscapes and this and this and this. And like most things on Instagram, they only show you the best of their life, right? So, and you actually get there in real life and you're hiking down the side of a mountain over boulders. It's, this is not what they show you. Right. Um, though he, he talks about it, right. I mean, it, it was very well explained, like this is going to be a very tough race. You know, I recommend, uh, a hardtail mountain bike, uh, with bigger tires and, you know, all this like potentially rigid fork, but bigger tires and, and like more of a mountain bike than a, than a gravel bike. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the start and you see everyone kind of there, like, uh, I mean, fair enough, majority of people, it was, it was their first bikepacking event, myself included, obviously. And it was really amazing to see because there was such a wide breadth of people, you know, from, mm -hmm. you know, guys in their sixties to, uh, you know, uh, mixed teams who the first time ever doing anything like that. Um, a lot of newbies and but that also kind of meant that you know it was a lot of gravel bikes with 40 mil tires 700c wheels and right it was like i don't know it would have been very very tough race tougher racing with those types of uh that type of equipment and um but yeah i mean it's it's a different ball game again uh completely different and that ultra endurance world is very cool, but it's very crazy. I mean, uh, Sofian who won, um, his objective for the race was not to sleep, right? So 1150 kilometers gravel mountain bikey, you know, his goal was to ride through this event without just a wink of sleep. And in the end he slept, uh, about two hours, mm -hmm. but this was, I remember this is in the last part of the race. Like he pushed through as far as he could and then eventually like had a really big lead and obviously was very tired and okay, I'm going to take a couple of naps. Um, but the first three days, the guy did not sleep a wink, you know, and when he would stop three days, three days no sleep day night, like don't stop pedaling. Right. He would, he would literally stop at a shop. Um, go in, get his stuff together and go like there wasn't sit down meals. There wasn't, you know, but he's not riding particularly fast, right? right? He just steady. doesn't stop. Right. And so you have that sort of tactic and then you had, um, 
like on the first day over the first climb uh, to the first checkpoint, I arrived first at the first checkpoint um, with uh, together, sort of together, uh, maybe 15 minutes apart uh, from Matteo De Marchi uh, from Italy. And then I carried on and it sort of extended my lead. And, and that day I rode uh, 12 hours and I sort of got to, I mean, my goal was always to sleep. Like I knew I would have to sleep. Um, initially I sort of thought maybe the first night I could ride through and then sleep, but you know, whatever, I, I kind of ended up in this, in this place. And then at like 10 at night, you know, I was in the shop and, uh, I was starting to think about like, okay, how do I sleep? I, I had all my system for bivying and everything. And the guy, and the guy in the shop told me oh, down the street, there's a, like a guest house, right? And in these types of events, you can essentially sleep anywhere you want, as long as it's available to everybody, right? So a hotel, if you want, guest house, you can bivy, you can do whatever you want. Um, you just sort of can't go into, like, ask people to sleep in the private homes or things like that. And so I was like, oh, well, it's just right there. I'll just sleep there. Um, so I just stopped, uh, had dinner in there, in the, in the guest house, and then slept. And I'd set my alarm uh, to, I got there at 10 and my, my idea was to leave at 4 a.m. again. And so I set my alarm with the bed at 11 and then it was kind of strange. I was all of a sudden at two in the morning, I just woke up like eyes open and there's something in, in like my mind was like, go. I was like, okay. So I just woke up, got dressed, um, got back on the road. And as I was leaving, another guy sort of come in and he was going to stop there. And then I started sort of, I could see on the, on the tracking where I was. So like six guys had passed me while I was sleeping. So I sort of stopped for three hours. And then when I started again, riding, I sort of saw like a couple of guys, I could see they were starting to stop, like they weren't far ahead of me. And I could see they sort of stopped uh, and they were like bivying, getting ready to sleep. And I was riding, riding and, and uh, passing a couple of guys here and there. And then eventually, you know, we're, there's like this super hard climb and you can kind of see the little light from a guy. So when I caught him, uh, it was Sofian and I had passed some other guys who had obviously stopped and I didn't see them. But now by sort of maybe seven in the morning, six and seven in the morning, uh, I was back in the lead. So Sophia hadn't stopped. And then I had sort of uh, passed a whole bunch of people, caught him and then dropped him. And that day I ended up having like a whole bunch of issues. Like I, I punctured like five times and I was starting to have um, sort of saddle issues and things like that. So I was stopping a lot. And then I could see he would be like, coming closer and then I'd leave again, I'd drift. And it, it was kind of this sort of cat and mouse thing. And then eventually he caught me sort of towards the end of the day. Um, and then I passed him again, like quite easily, you know? Um, so it kind of, there's just different strategies. Like I was riding quite a bit faster, um, but I have to stop. And he just kind of just chucks away, you know? And in the end, uh, James Hayden finished second. I mean, James was sleeping consistently um mm -hmm. but rides quite a bit faster and by the end of the race he finished maybe four hours behind Sofian um and much stronger like when I saw James at the finish 
uh, he actually rolled in, he looked quite, I mean, not fresh, but, but sort of compared to Sofia, he looked much fresher. So, I mean, there's all kinds of tactics in that world. And it's, it's a cruel world also, because at the same time, it's like you have that whole group of people who had started just with the adventure, right? Mm -hmm. Like they weren't, they weren't there to, to go for the result, but they're riding the same course, they're riding the same race. Um, they have the same emotions, the same feelings, you know, you all have the same challenges. Um, you know, it's self-supported for everybody. Um, and the other side of it to me that's super fascinating is, is just the whole sort of geeky side to it, you know, because everybody's setup was so different, right. you know, from like rigid mountain bikes to, you know, custom steel bikes to just full commercial gravel bikes to like just weird things. Um, and you know, everything also from, you know, wheels to tires, to packs, to lighting systems, to charging systems, to like everybody had their own system. And it's a bit unique because it's really just about what works for you. Right. And, and right. what makes you comfortable. Um, and there's not necessarily the best one. I mean, if you look at all right. three, the top three guys, each one has a different system. You know, Jay always wears a backpack. Um, you know, some people have, have um, a running dynamo hub. Some people prefer, prefer battery packs. Some people prefer, and, um, you know, the first two guys to finish are riding mountain bikes, but the guy in third was riding, you know, gravel bike with 40 mil tires. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's quite cool. And it, it's, uh, if you're into that sort of stuff, you know, it's uh, a lot of geeking out about building up your pack system and your lights and your charging and, and all that. So that was, that's super fun. And I really like that. And it's kind of this constant evolution of, of learning more and, and uh, changing your setup for next time and, and making it sort of perfect. Is that, is that, is Atlas Mountain, is that an annual event or? Yep. So this was the first year. Um, okay. But they'll definitely be doing it again next year. Yeah. And are, is uh, Christian Meyer at the start line? Yes, I hope to be at the start line again for sure. I mean, I, I mean, in in the end, in the end, I mean, I stopped after halfway, so I had issues with my. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't really say saddle sore, because it wasn't I guess saddle sore that you would think. I just had like uh, friction problems, like I was just losing sort of rubbed skin off my ass, and it just became really difficult, and you just can't sit. Like when I got some once in a while a road section, it was manageable. But when you got to gravel, it was like, you know, it got to be quite excruciating. So in the end, I had to stop uh, halfway. And, you know, obviously I want to go back and at least try to finish, finish the event. Right. Um, especially now with a bit more experience. So I'm talking about, you know, everybody has their own unique setup. Kind of bring this back to the service course. Service course is also sort of that it's, it's, very very unique shop that you've created there that has really set the bar very high for a lot of retailers around the world it's you know it's, it's a world uh, world-renowned sh shop um what was the catalyst for you starting that yeah i mean the service course started um it came through la fabrica to be honest um we had la fabrica and at this point probably like after a couple of years of being open we started to get a lot more cycle tourists. I mean, I don't really call them cycle tourists, but it's kind of like 
early adopters. Girona is starting to become known, a lot of professional cyclists living there. So we were getting a lot of cyclists that were, um, you know, not just kind of your, your average cyclists, people that were in the know, right? Like someone who's reading like a Roulette magazine or something like that, right? And um, we started to see them coming, you know, coming to Girona and they'd always come to La Fabrica because they're always looking for coffee. And because I spent a lot of time also working at La Fabrica, I would just sort of hang out and, and chat with people, you know, and they'd always ask like where to go riding. And sometimes I'd go riding with them and things like that. And, um, you know, it's sort of this reoccurring theme was, was, was coming up with, with uh, clients, which was, you know, there was no really servicing kind of what they were looking for, um, for their, for their cycling holiday. So there was a place in Girona that was renting bikes at the time, but you're kind of looking at like a 105 level, quite basic rental, but no one had really, you know, in terms of offering a wider breadth of services at particularly aimed at higher end customer, you might say, I don't know. I mean, I don't really say that we are luxury by any means. Um, but we're more no, I think what you said before, it's the customer that is in the know and yeah. is in a affectiando of, you know, cycling. Yeah. I mean, what we sort of brought was prof the professional side of, of cycling to let's say the consumer, right. As a, as a professional rider and professional team, the team is there to provide you with everything you need to perform. Right. So if that's doing your laundry, washing your bike, all that sort of stuff um, is done for you so that you can perform at your best when you're training and racing. Right. I mean, there's nothing really luxurious about being a professional bike rider. I mean, but it's more of a utilitarian. This is everything you need to get done. Um, and we'll do it really well at the best we can. And for us, it was essentially bringing that to the consumer, but instead of for it to be, to perform at the best, it's like, so when you come to drone and you can, you're on a holiday, right? You're on a vacation. So what we do is that we want to take away all that sort of um, little details and bike washes and mechanics and stuff like that and doing your laundry so that you can just sort of step out of the shop and step into enjoying your holiday and not worry about all that little stuff. Um, and that's kind of was the premises behind it was sort of coming, bringing that professional team background and level of service to a different rider, different style of rider. And so, you know, we've got lockers and showers and we've got essentially everything you, you could need. We've massage in house. We have, we have all those details and we do guiding and we do tours and we do all kinds of stuff. And then we sort of led into, you know, at the time, and I also really remember the first time we sat down uh, mm -hmm. in Girona yeah. and you know, sort of explaining my idea also was at the same time. And this had come from, this had actually come from a little bit of frustration of my own in, in the coffee world, which was, um, you know, what a lot of brands are missing is somehow to showcase your product to your client, right? And not just showcase it, but allow someone to, so for me, like not being able to test products before I bought them, um, which at the time for me was like coffee grinders and certain things that I thought were really great. And then I bought it and it wasn't quite what I expected. And now I'm sitting on this thing I paid two grand for. 
Um, I was just found that really strange, you know? Um, and because we were doing rental bikes, obviously it was a perfect opportunity for, um, people to be able to try certain brands before they buy them. I mean, it kind of just made sense to me. If you're going to spend 3000 euros on a set of wheels, you know, you imagine you'd be able to take them for a spin first and see, you know, how they go. And not just necessarily about that one product, but yeah, then you sort of say like, you know, for a certain customer in the case of Envy, it's like, do I want 3.4s or do I want 4.5s? Do I want 2.2s? You know, and you're kind of making a slightly educated guess and, you know, someone can can sort of lay you out your options and, and, and help you, but nothing is better than actually just getting on the product and like, you know, for whatever reason, these 4.5s just sing to me and I'm going to get these, right? Um, right. And that kind of was the premise behind, look, we've got these rentals. It's, it's actually an opportunity to sort of showcase some brands and have brands the opportunities to directly connect with what is actually their target audience, right? Um, and then, so we started, I mean, I remember saying before, like having that meeting with you, explain to that and, and you know, to this day, I remember Envy was like one of the, the brand that was from day one was like, sweet, let's go, you know, it sounds great, let's do it. Um, and support us from the very beginning. And then we sort of bring in sort of uh, at the time, also when I retired, I got into steel bikes. Uh, I bought my first speed wagon and yeah, that was and, your retirement present, right? Yeah, it was a retirement present, exactly. And, you know, to this day, my Speedwagon uh, road bike is my still my sort of my favorite bike and, and my baby. But it just opened up again this whole other world for me and, and steel became like, holy cow. I mean, more people should be riding steel bikes. Actually, I believe majority of people should probably be riding steel bikes. Um, and then we had local builders, um, uh, Mattia uh, from Legor was our first sort of in-house builder. And then we added uh, Bell Cycles and, and yeah, I mean, over the years we've added Bastion and Argonaut and, and um, Eisen. And uh, so we've got a great group of, of custom bike builders. And it was the same sort of idea there. It's like, look, these guys are, are small businesses. I mean, a lot of them are one man show who is, who's doing from like answering emails to, to building your bike. Right. So the one thing they don't have is they don't have a storefront. They don't have a shop front. They don't have, I mean, the only way that you generally would, would see one of their bikes is if someone in your group had one, you know, and you're riding buddies or you kind of found them over the internet, over social media or whatever, and you connect with the brand and you reached out and you start and you start building. Right but there was this no sort of um, there wasn't really exposure uh, right. to steel on a more, on a more mainstream level. Right. Uh, so we sort of thought, well, okay, let's get some steel bikes in the rental fleet. Right. And people come in and they're on their holiday and they can rent beautiful hand-built bike um, and experience that while experiencing, you know, and the wheels while experiencing kind of the, the best of everything that there is up there. Right. You know, our idea was always that, you know, when you come and, and to drone and ride, I mean, your bike should be at least as good as what you're riding at home, if not better. I mean, it should be mm -hmm. kind of like, so we've got, you know, a range of bikes that um, are on the very top end. You know, you could be right. You could be renting a 15,000 euro bike 
right? With with ceramic speed, oversized pulley wheels, and full ND everything, and 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 handmade, right? So it's kind of like it it worked in in everybody's favor. I mean, we had exceptional bikes um, in our fleet to offer. Builders had a place to showcase their bikes, um, and you know, brands had a direct connection to to clients. And over the years, that sort of in the beginning, um, you know, we the majority of our of our let's say income generally is travel, right? If that's from you know trips we organize to guiding to the standard stuff in in Girona and and well now Oslo, but as you know, it's just tour, travel right now is sort of axed. But also <laughs> on the other side, what we sort of always had was retail, um, and we also had custom bikes. Right. So the idea was over time, we could start to offer those bikes that people were riding and say, look, let's build you your own. Right. Yep. And I mean, I'd always sort of been really intrigued and, and really looked up to shops like above category um, in California as kind of these shops that were kind of just doing things a little bit different. Right. And it was about, you know, it's about a really valuable product um and also it's about the value of a product and the value of of craftsmanship and the value of of work right so um it took a while for us to sort of grow that because one in in spain the market is still very commercial um you know a lot of people are still looking for your you know your your bikes that be ridden being ridden in the tour sort of thing um other countries were starting to change a little bit, you know, the UK, especially, I mean, they sort of have a little bit more heritage of, of, of steel building and, and custom bikes. Um, but what we started to get was sort of people getting interested and it was like North Americans um, were coming to us to get some of our steel bikes built and things like that. And then, you know, now for us, it's really turned into, you know, it's very own part of the business um, building custom bikes. And, you know, it's an interesting one because also for us, it's, you know, the current climate in retail has changed dramatically in the last few years from, you know, bricks and mortar to online, right? From, you know, retail price to, you know, the new, you know, essentially it's called the new retail price, you know, for us as a shop, you know, we can buy tires cheaper online than is actually our cost price. Um, right. so you start to sort of see like, okay, there's this, there's this trend. You start to see a shift towards the digital world for, you know, the price conscious consumer. And what you start to see is, I mean, it, it's a sort of general thing of, of customers are, or consumers generally always want, you know, they want to get more bang for their buck. Right. So, um, and I'll sort of lead to that in, in, a, in another little thing in a bit, but you know, for us from the very beginning, we sort of said, look, these are, we do retail prices only. Um, you probably will find that groups that cheaper online, right? But a couple of things there are like, if you, when that something breaks on that group set, you know, good luck, you know, bringing up your online shop and getting someone to, to replace it for you, to fix it for you, or to help you, or or things like that. I mean, when we 
also working with builders, it's like the value of a product of a, of a, of a hand-built bike is we don't have those same margins as when bikes come from, you know, uh, from mass production. So for us as a shop, I mean, it's incredibly important that, you know, the, the margins that we do get from offering our components and things like that are at retail price is our sort of what allows us then to, to offer a service. I mean, people want to come in to the shop and they love coming into the shop and they want to, they want to sit and they want to talk to you and they want to talk to the mechanics and they want to look at all this really nice, shiny stuff and all this and that be like, well, that's fantastic. And that's how it should be. But that also costs money. I mean, I want to pay my mechanic a good wage. Um, I want to pay my staff a good wage. And, you know, it's not like we're sitting here in the bike industry, um, you know, these independent shops, just like cranking over the cash, you know, it's not like, a, you know, we didn't do it to become multimillionaires, but at the end of the day, everyone needs to come out, you know, feeling good. And, and our customers that we have fortunately at the moment, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, they get that. I mean, um, people come to us for, for bikes and they understand the value of, of the product and they understand the value of the service that comes along with, with the price that they pay. And, you know, it's been, it's been a really sort of really cool and incredible to follow sort of that growth of, of custom bikes and the bikes that are coming through and steel bikes and, and the growth in, in Europe. I mean, we're, we're in Girona, but you know, majority of our bikes, probably 90% or more, um, are from outside of Spain, actually. Um, right. So, you know, bikes from are coming from mostly all over Europe, UK, Norway, uh, you know, Cyprus and kind of these far reaching areas, Germany, um, it's growing in France and areas like this. So it's super cool. And, I'm, you know, I'm really glad. I mean, it took a lot of work, you know, because in the beginning, you know, you're selling a few bikes a year in the beginning because, you know, it also wasn't our main revenue focus so you know if people wanted one we get we do it and we'd work on it and yeah awesome projects but we really kind of push really hard just on kind of sticking with what we really believe in um which was steel which was not mainstream and it was difficult to get it going um and we always just kind of you know stuck to our guns and and all the products that we have in our shops are all products that we ride. It's all products that we've tested. Um, you know, the margin isn't what brings a product into our shop. You know, it's, it's the product itself. So actually our offering isn't really that big. Um, you know, we've got, you know, a couple of wheels and a couple of components and that's about it, you know, and then, uh, because those are the ones that have, we sort of tried and, and tested and, and, and that have been great partners also, right? Because I mean, when you're sort of dealing with, with, uh, brands to shop, it's, it's about, it's a two way street, you know, the partnership goes both ways. Right. So, uh, you know, having a brand that believes much in, in you and what you're doing as you believe in what they're doing is, mm -hmm. is super important. Um, I think that's one thing about to me that I was also really particularly appreciated about envy uh, is they were kind of like one of the, I was found one of the only more mainstream brands. I mean, you guys are a big company. I mean, you're not 
necessarily, you know, small Mickey Mouse wheel brand anymore. Um, but always re remained able to stay cool, if you know what I mean. Um, and, you know, but I, I see that comes because of the continual support of the builders. You know, to me, it's about majority of bikes that you see that are hand-built bikes will be stocked with Envy, right? right? And again, that's not just because, you know, Envy is offering, you know, great commercial terms. It's because, now correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, it seems like because Envy, that is who they are at the core. You know, it's like they love that cool stuff also. I mean, they believe in the builder. Absolutely. And they and they believe in supporting the builder, right? And when you just kind of meet the people in and around, and the it very quickly starts to feel like a very small company, right? Like it's it's a group of people that really just love bikes and love riding cool bikes. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that that comes through because yeah. I mean that's definitely the culture that we try to breed at Envy. Mm -hmm. And you know, if, anytime you would walk into the shop and mm -hmm. look at you know all the bikes parked there you're going to see mostly hand-built bikes you know because mm -hmm. that are you know some pretty sweet you know mountain bikes like yetis and yeah, yeah. You know, that kind yeah, of yeah. stuff so um yeah we're very enthusiastic about our equipment and want to ride the best stuff i mean mm -hmm. there's speed wagons and yeah. ligors and cremas mm -hmm. and all kinds of sick bikes floating around the shop and you know we've you know, started off working with frame builders early on and we've never abandoned that. We've always, mm. you know, whenever we have projects and stuff, we're very eager to work with them and whether it's forks or other products, mm. we do a lot of launches with them mm. um, and, you know, include them on product development. So I'm glad, but I, it's, it's always, it's always good to hear that that's coming through. Yeah. I mean, it's good, but also I mean, it's, it's super important. Um, you know, I think it's kind of like, over time, I mean, I, I sort of think that, you know, I, I personally definitely don't believe that bricks and mortar is dead. I mean, um, I think all. bricks and mortar is coming back, but I think it's going to be coming back in a different, in a different style, right? I mean, it has to be very service focused um, yeah. and it has to be very customer focused, right? And, you know, I think it's sort of, it takes a bit more time and you have to spend more time with your customers. And you have to think, but you know, the relationship is becoming kind of, I, th I really think it's come becoming the driving factor for people to, yep. to sort of come back and, and come back to your shop. Um, and a lot of that is, is driven by, by trust. You know, a lot of that is driven by um, personality and, but the trust factor is quite important. I think, I mean, I think it's, you know, for someone to understand that if, if they come to your shop, um, they listen to what you say and, you know, that you can really recommend them the best product for them. You know, it's not, uh, you know, we've got plenty of bikes that go out that we are doing with, with Altegra DI2, you know, because I really believe like for this guy, that's, that's the better product. I mean, he doesn't need a Durace, you know, and why should I sell that to him just because, right? Um, but then I do know that next time he needs something, you know, he's coming back to me because he knows I'm going to give him an honest opinion and, and just get him what he needs and, and make sure he's happy. And, uh, you know, it's the same thing with, then with the, the, 
with the partner brands also. It's like you've got trust in, in the product, you've got trust in their customer service. Um, I mean, things are always going to happen, right? I mean, things break. That's that's the reality of, 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 of everything. I mean, especially when you get into handmade products. I mean, nobody's perfect, but it's generally just how how the the shop or the builder or the or the the brand deal with those with those mishaps right and that's kind of the real Correct. thing that sets you apart more than anything um but yeah bricks and mortar is not dead no nope. we're gonna keep pushing <laughs> absolutely um besides the the travel and the custom bikes uh, I, and i i know that you're super busy always have ideas and very creative. Tell us about your clothing that you're working on. Yeah, so we are working on a bit of bit of stuff. So we, uh, I mean, the last couple of years we've always had clothing, um, but we essentially sort of done like a club kit, right? So we work with Core A and we've had some our design service course and, and the fabric and so on. Um, and then we eventually started to decide, okay, what, um, you know, riding a lot, uh, having a lot of experience in clothing and, and having ridden and tried just about everything, we sort of say, okay, well, on some things we'd like to just have our take on it, you know? Um, and it's another thing that we can sort of bring in house and then we can sort of control more and, and put our twist on it. So we started, uh, yeah, over a year ago now working on our own brand of, of, of kit, um, made in Italy, um, obviously starting to focus more on the sustainability side with recycled materials wherever we can and, and things like that. Um, so that's quite exciting. I mean, we've had some setbacks in the last month with, with Corona. Um, right. You know, Italy is obviously hard hit, uh, like everywhere. And, and actually where we're producing our clothing, um, our producer, they are, um, which is, which is Santini is, is producing our clothing for us. Um, under our brand, they aren't actually closed, but they've been producing, uh, face masks and, um, and sort of suits for the, for the Italian government for, you know, a few weeks now, and they've just been extended to, to do it some more. So they're sort of, um, working away on that, which kind of, you know, backlogs everything on the cycling side a little bit, which is, which is obviously okay. because we need to get that figured out first, but, um, yeah, so we're kind of eventually rolling out a, a pretty solid range of everything. Um, you know, everything that you need from bibs to to jerseys to accessories, and then getting a bit more evolving that into you know we're gonna have all the jackets and we're gonna have all the vests and we're gonna have all that sort of stuff. But there's a little another little side project um, that I've been working on quite. I mean, on on the on the road stuff, I mean, there's some cool stuff, there's some cool fabrics and things like that but you're not necessarily reinventing the wheel, right? Like, uh, you know, Jersey needs three pockets and, you know, shorts need bibs and they need a chamois. Uh, beyond that, there's, you know, you're not going to change too much. Um, but an interesting thing that we're working on, uh, where we've had a bit more opportunity to really kind of push the boundaries, change a little bit is uh, on our gravel range, actually. So we're working quite hard on producing a, what I think is a pretty cool, gravel collection, um, focused around some really cool fabrics, uh, focused a lot around quite a bit of wool, um, 
wool, wool blends, things like that. So we kind of get the best out of properties of, of Merino. Um, and also a little bit about multi-use travel adventure, sort of, you know, think about clothing that you can wear on the street to the gym, the bikepacking adventure to, you know, kind of cover a broad spectrum of, of, of duties, um, looks good, um, feels good. And so that's gonna, that's being a bit more towards uh, June launch. Um, we'll have its own cool little name and, and, and some unique things to it. Um, but that one's quite exciting. I mean, I'm super excited about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was starting to do, I mean, a lot of people have actually asked some of the prototypes. I was riding them in Atlas Mountain. Uh, and that actually I sort of ended up selling them myself. Um, kind of got to the point where, you know, with manufacturing, it takes a bit of time to get prototypes done. Right. So I just figured, well, well I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just buy a sewing machine and sew them myself. Yeah. So you and, did sew uh, your own kit? Yeah, I've got, I sewed a couple uh, t-shirts and long sleeve and things like that. <laughs> Turn out, I mean, it was kind of like, yeah, obviously it's, uh, Piece a bit of work, but it got got the job done. Um, you know, I have like maybe a little hole under the armpit, but uh, it worked enough well, probably to helps probably help you that, understand right? the process of uh, actually the production, and you know, allows you to solve some problems quicker. Exactly, big time. Yeah, it's so true, and that's exactly why I did it. I was like, look, I can get this done. I can make amendments. I can change some things and see right there and then, and, and that. Um, I mean, it's, I'm definitely not a seamstress, but it's, it's also not terribly difficult. Um, right. So, and like I said, it's good to have an understanding about, you know, how things are made and things like that. I haven't really attempted to make any bib shorts, but um, I'll save that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's cool. It'd be super exciting. Super excited about it. Right. Just need a little bit more time. So, and to be able to ride outside. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Get back outside and ride. That's, that's a big thing. Mm. So, yeah, I, I know that uh, the current situation is, you know, obviously you shelved a lot of your plans for this year. So like a lot of people, I think you're looking towards summer and even later. What's uh, the second half of the year hold for you and Amber and everything that you guys got going on? Yeah, I mean, a, a big focus of our business is travel, obviously. Uh, and a big focus of our business is travel in Spain. And Spain being one of the hardest hit areas, um, obviously makes that a bit tricky. And I guess we don't really, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment about as much as when we're going to be able to go outside to, you know, when we're going to be able to, to even host a group activity again. Right. So it's as basic as having a local group ride. Um, and then that turns into a whole other sort of broader question about when, for example, do you think, you know, Americans are going to be able to travel to Europe again, or, I mean, countries that are significantly sort of behind where we are already. Um, and things are just, are still kind of on an upward trend when we're on a downward trend. I mean, and, you know, a lot of airlines in Europe, they're talking about, you know, they're not going to start flying again before sort of early to mid June. Um, so, you know, it's essentially sort of scrapped a big portion of our, of our travel calendar. Obviously we're trying as best we can to, reposition that further into the second part of the year. Um, the general sort of feeling with, with customers, they still want to come. I mean, people still want to come and they still want to do the cycling holiday. Um, 
and it's just about figuring out what that what that looks like now. So it's kind of a restructure. And you know, fortunately for us, in the last you know three, four, five years, um, the weather has sort of been generally shifting, right? So uh, November's tend to be better than they ever have been. Um, you know, we still see low twenties in November. Uh, October is an amazing time of the year to come, and you know, so kind of we're looking sort of from September onwards that we can potentially start to do some things. Um, and we see that happening now with, okay, if, uh, events are starting to become, uh, you know, are starting to be scheduled at times of the year that, you know, something like the tour being rescheduled for end of August or September, um, hopefully it gives you, inspires a bit more confidence that things will be going by then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what we're sort of starting at. Um, you know, my big thing is we had a we had a trip that I was particularly excited about this year, which was to Tajikistan, um, which we had scheduled for June. Um, we've sort of had to reschedule now. We've sort of told our clients that signed up for that trip, look, we still really want to run this trip. Um, it'll probably end up being either, you know, end of August or first half of September, um, which I really hope we can make. I mean, everyone, everyone who's on that trip is still like super keen and they want to go and they want to get there. So that's kind of my big one that I really want to kind of get nailed and make sure it still happens this year. And that's Um, the one, that's the trip that you did the film of. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So So we got a really good response from that. Go ahead. Um, we had a really big response, uh, from that. And I think it inspired a lot of people's imaginations. And, uh, so it's a lot of people signed up, a lot of people really want to go and we're gonna try to make it happen. And then what I'm going to try to do this year, my idea is, is to it, the trip we're offering is a little bit different than the, the ride we did. The ride we did was sort of a really big loop. Um, and the trip we're doing is point to point. So it starts in Tajikistan uh, and finishes in Kyrgyzstan, just in the border. And then our intention is to myself and Peter, who I did the trip with, um, who are guiding the Tajikistan trip, the two of us, we're going to stay on and we're going to do uh, another trip in Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. And hopefully our idea next year is, is that we can sort of uh, run a Tajikistan trip and then continue with a Kyrgyzstan trip and offer sort of the clients the year before had done Tajikistan, we can offer them to come back, do Kyrgyzstan and sort of continue the loop, right? And then keep adding and, and sort of people can sort of cross off that part of the world um, right. over a few years of, of doing different point-to-point sections. Um, nice. So that's, that's super exciting. It's super cool amazing part of the world um yeah and we've got some other cool things happening um to be announced soon um in girona so stay tuned for that uh so yeah i mean it's 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 good i mean i'm I'm just kind of i mean my first thing is as soon as i can ride outside got a couple trips planned uh one bike packing one here in, in in and around girona and then um you know i really really would like to just get back to Italy. Um, you know, I love, I love Tuscany so much and kind of just want to get back and, and, uh, got another nice little bike packing trip plan with some friends to go sort of from, 
to sort of follow a bit of the Via Francesina and go all the way from like up towards Liguria down to, to Rome on, on gravel. Nice. Um, so those kind of the first trips just to, just to get out, you know, yep. get biking. Again. I think everybody's quite eager to get back out on the bike. Those that have been totally shut down and haven't had a chance to ride. So um, yeah. hopefully the situation will start to relax itself and everybody can get back out there on the bikes. And, you know, I know the bike shops want to see the customers coming back in. So yeah, big time, big time. Good. All right. Well, Sweet. I think that's a good place for us to end this conversation until the next time. Sounds I mean, good. I know there's a lot more to talk about with you, so we'll have to have you come back, but um, Plenty. thank you so much for your time, Christian. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. Um, and anybody that's interested, definitely check out the service course and make your way over to Girona. In the meantime, enjoy some of uh, Christian's films and projects that he's done. And yeah. We'll build, build, build your next dream bike. There you go. All right. Thanks.